When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Judicial Branch Review uh, for the AP test. So uh, just as always, I'm going through the College Board course and exam description. So these are the, the standards, the topics, uh, the substandards, and all those sorts of things that the, the College Board lists. So potential questions and things like that can come from. Uh, not going into great detail, touching, you know, scratching the surface of some of this stuff, uh, just for the... the uh, in the essence of saving time and things like that. But uh, hopefully, you know, getting you enough information that uh, it can trigger some memories and, and things like that. So let's jump into this. Um, as always, remember, uh, you can contact me through email, through uh, Remind Text, um, come see me in person, social media. I've given all those things out before. Um, so if you need to, please find me and make me answer your questions. All right. So the judicial branch has four standards. There's 2.8. 2.9, 10, and 11, and uh, it should be pretty quick as far as the podcast goes. Uh, all right, so 2.8 is the judicial branch. That's what it's titled, and the enduring understanding says the design of the judicial branch protects the Supreme Court's independence, okay, that's a key thing there, as a branch of government, and the emergence and use of judicial review remains a powerful judicial practice. Uh, that's their big tool, all right, is judicial review. That's uh, what gives the, the judicial branch most of their power. Uh, explain the principle of judicial review and how it checks the power of the other institutions of state government. So remember, uh, this whole unit is about the interactions among the branches. And so the checks and balances amongst them uh, is a key concept. So uh, the essential knowledge for this is basically the foundation for the powers of the judicial branch. And there's three things. Uh, and they're all required components, whether they're required documents or required cases. You've got the Constitution and Article 3, you've got the Federalist 78, and you've got Marbury versus Madison. So first off, the two documents. Article 3 of the Constitution is what creates and sets up the, the court system, the federal court system. Now remember that the Articles of Confederation did not have a national court system. And so that was one of the things they wanted to fix because the problem there is you might have a state <clears throat> ruling one way on something, another state or area rule in another way. And so you have no uniformity there. So we need to have this national judiciary, which can make rulings that give us a kind of a national law. And so that was the, the big, <clears throat> one of the big reasons we wanted to create a, uh, a federal judiciary uh, in this new government. And so Article 3 will do that. Now, that sets up the, the structure of the courts. But you also need to remember that Article 1, since we're talking about interactions among the branches, Article 1 allows Congress to set up courts. So there are legislative courts as well. Um, things like the uh, the bankruptcy court and things like that have been set up aside from what is set up in Article 3, which is our district, our, our appeals and Supreme Court. Okay. Fed 78 was uh, written and it is arguing for the Supreme Court. And just like all the other Fed papers, you don't have to be able to quote from these things, but you do need to understand them. You do need to be able to um, not necessarily quote, but hey, talk about this is what Fed 78 was talking about and pull information from that, okay, 
into your writing if you're having to write an argumentative essay uh, on this topic or whatever it might be. You don't have to quote directly. You don't have to say Fed 78 says this and cite an APA or something like that. But you do need to be able to understand the overarching ideas and present them uh, in written form. So Fed 78 obviously is written in support of the Constitution, is written in support of a national judiciary. Okay. Um, and a couple of things. Uh, Hamilton's going to write about the fact that the courts need judicial review as a check on the other branches. And judicial review is going to be the tool that the courts use to keep the others uh, in line and gives them the power uh, to review laws, policies that the states come up with, that the federal government comes up with. Now, Brutus One, one of your other uh, required docs, is going to talk about the fact that the judicial branch is going to be too powerful because uh, of the fact that they're you know, insulated, they're independent from the constituency. You know, there's no elections and things like that. And so that's something that they were, that Brutus One concentrated on. And uh, Hamilton addresses that as well in the fact that, hey, this is going to be a pretty weak branch because they are reliant on all the other branches, or not all the other, but the other two branches to enforce decisions and do anything like that. Uh, Marbury versus Madison is a required court case, and you've probably gotten this throughout your, your school career. Uh, got it in U.S. history and, and all that kind of stuff. And so um, Marbury versus Madison, this is what established really the judicial review part uh, of the check and balance that the, the courts have. Remember, this is where Adams, as president, as he was leaving office, had signed those midnight judges, 15, 16 of them, uh, into positions. All right. They had not gone through the process, obviously. They had not gone through the, the confirmation process or anything like that with the court, with the, with the Senate. But he signed the documents as he left. He left them on the desk for Jefferson. Uh, maybe not. I don't know where he put them. But uh, Jefferson was like, I'm not, I'm not going to submit these things. We're not going to deliver these papers. We're not going to honor these commitments because those are Adam's people and I want my people on there. And so he refused to, to deliver the paperwork or uh, Madison did because he was, uh, he was working with Jefferson. And uh, so that's what prompts this case to make it and get to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to pretty much blow up uh, the whole Judiciary Act and say, hey, this is not how it should be. And that's going to be kind of the first major case that the Supreme Court uses judicial review. And from there, it just, okay, well, the courts have that ability. They have that power. It's something that's established now. They can declare laws, whether they're federal or state, policies, federal or state, as unconstitutional. And so that's the power of judicial review. And it is a huge check on uh, the other branches of government and the states. Even. All right. 2.9, the legitimacy of the judicial branch. So the uh, learning objective here is explain how the exercise of judicial review in conjunction with life tenure can lead to debate about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court's power. So there's two parts to the essential knowledge thing here. First off is the precedent and stare decisis part uh, and the role they play in judicial decision making. So let's do that one first. So precedents and stare decisis. So there are cases and, and you know, you've got your required cases and most of those are precedent setting cases where the Supreme Court makes a ruling and they're kind of the, the go to the ironclad. This is the ruling that was made. This is how we're going to proceed in any case that's similar. So, you know, Brown versus Board of Education is a precedent setting case. It not only overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, but it creates the doctrine of there's, there's not going to be any more divided schools. Um, and if someone, some school system, some school, whatever in the country 
is segregating students, that's it's not even going to make it to, uh, you know, a, um, a, a a higher up court. The lower court's going to say, "What's going? This is this was decided in Brown versus Board. We don't need to proceed with anything else. That case was already decided." Okay. Stare decisis is just using old cases to help with those decisions. Now, sometimes it could be as clear as the Brown versus Board decision there, where, hey, there's not going to be any more segregated schools in this country, okay, uh, which hopefully that will never happen. All right, we will never get into a situation where schools being sued because we're trying to segregate students. Hopefully that never happens. But uh, stare decisis is using the old cases, whether they're precedent-setting cases or they're just regular cases that were decided by lower courts or the Supreme Court themselves to help guide the new decision. Okay, so if, if I get caught um, stealing money from the school, would I be the first teacher in the history of schools that ever got caught stealing money from schools? Probably not. Okay, uh, so and there's probably been teachers that have been found guilty and teachers that have been found not guilty for that kind of stuff. So my lawyer would be looking in the past for cases where, hey, this is what happened and this is a teacher that got off. And then the prosecution would be looking for cases where here's a teacher that did this and they were found guilty. And they would present both those to the courts and they would you know, say, hey, in 1982, this happened. In 1992, this happened, so on and so forth. And they would ask the courts, hey, let that guide some of your decision making. When you're when you're hearing this case and whatnot, so stare decisis is the reliance on old cases to help with a current decision. Um, now that doesn't mean these can't be overturned. The going back to Brown, you know, if 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 the precedent setting cases were ironclad and the courts didn't just well that's the decision, then Plessy versus Ferguson would have never been overturned with the Brown versus Board of Education. So, you know, these aren't ironclad things. Precedent can be overturned. Stare decisis. You can look at something and say, you know what? And this tends to be a judicial activism thing. That case back then was wrong. Okay. And luckily they did that with the Plessy versus Ferguson and the Brown versus Board case, where Brown versus Board is going to overturn Plessy versus Ferguson. So um, that's precedent and stare decisis. Uh, the next one, ideological changes in the composition of the Supreme Court due to presidential appointments have led to the courts establishing new or rejecting existing precedent. So basically, you know, a president gets to put people on, on the, the court when there's openings. Sometimes there's more, sometimes there's less. Uh, Trump got to put three Supreme Court justices onto the courts. Uh, Biden has put one so far. You know, he's still got another couple of years. Um, and so when a president puts people on, they fall into an ideological right or left. Trump put right-leaning judges on the court. Biden has put a left-leaning judge on the court. Biden will put more left-leaning judges on the court if more people uh, retire, pass away, or whatever it might be. So those shifts, okay, will affect what's going to happen with decisions, all righty? If you, I don't know if you can remember the Trump time when he got to put the three people on, on office. One of the big fears for people from the left was that this court is going to overturn Roe versus Wade with the, the abortion issues and things like that. So the ideological stuff happens as we get more people, less people uh, onto the court.
All right, 2.10, uh, the court in action. So the learning objective here is to explain how the exercise of judicial review in conjunction with life tenure can lead to debate about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court's power. And then the essential knowledge is controversial or unpopular court decisions can lead to challenges to the court's legitimacy and power that Congress and the president can address only through future appointments, legislation change in the court's jurisdiction, or refusing to implement decisions. A lot of stuff there. Basically, what we're getting at here is, first off, these judges have life tenure. They don't have to worry about any blowback. Okay, They can feel free to make a controversial decision. Um, you know, Brown versus Board was a controversial decision uh, because at the time that was just, it was you know, obviously a huge deal at that time in America. Um, <clears throat> but they can, the courts, you know, as people get on there and they're from a different ideological perspective, they're able to sometimes make changes uh, to precedent that is needed. All right. And then finally, 2.11, checks on the judicial branch. So there's two learning objectives here. Uh, the first one says to explain how the exercise judicial review in conjunction with life tenure is the same one as the last one. Uh, so the essential knowledge is political dis discussion about the Supreme Court's power is illustrated by the ongoing debate over judicial activism versus restraint. So let's define those two things very quickly and um, get, get on to the last one. So activism, this is where judges are going to use personal beliefs, personal ideologies to help them guide their decision making uh to help them you know set policy and things like that okay uh a couple of examples if you ever want to you know take a look at some examples take a look at the warren court uh from 53 to 65 i think earl warren was in charge of the court and a lot of his decisions a lot not his excuse me a lot of their decisions were based on judicial activism where they did overturn precedent-setting cases, and they did uh, make some decisions that may not have been popular around the country, okay? But judicial activism, and I'll talk about two cases in just a second. Judicial activism, though, that is where judges are actively trying to, to create set policy sometimes, but they're definitely using their personal ideologies, their personal beliefs to make decisions. So Warren, I said, was some examples he, he was the chief justice in charge of the Brown versus Board of Education case. That was judicial activism. They had a case. Plessy versus Ferguson had settled this issue about segregation and had created separate but equal. And they could have easily just gone with state decisis, precedent setting case. Hey, this was decided with Plessy versus Ferguson. Separate but equal is fine. But Earl Warren and the, and the rest of the court did not. They overturned that decision and they turned it on its head and said, hey, segregated schools is not equal. You know, separated schools is not equal. Um, and so we had a whole new policy created out of that. Okay. Miranda versus Arizona is another case that was decided uh, then. You know, at, at that time, Miranda had confessed to attacking and raping the, the, the woman and was had had a trial had been found guilty and was in jail when he appealed, saying, I didn't know I didn't have to talk to the police. Okay. That could have been a pretty easy decision to make, right? Just, well, hey, too bad. You don't you, you don't get a second shot. But they believed that everybody should know their rights and not be 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 made aware that you don't have to talk to the police. And so they overturned uh, his conviction and gave him a new trial. He was still found guilty, but the confession was thrown out. So that's judicial activism, okay? Uh, judicial restraint, this is where the judges are going to 
rely heavily on the Constitution. And they're going to try and keep their personal beliefs out of it. Okay. And um, if you want to look at a, a judge, a chief justice, you can look at the Rehnquist years. He was from 86, I think, to the early 2000s sometimes. So you can look up Rehnquist Court and you can see some cases where judicial restraint was in place. So the best example of that is Texas versus Johnson, the flag burning case. And I talk about it a lot. And just sorry. Okay. But that wasn't a popular opinion to say that burning the flag was legal, that it was okay for people to burn the flag. It wasn't a popular popular decision to be to make, but the court relied on the Constitution. They interpreted it, the First Amendment and the freedom of speech that people could burn the flag. And so they threw out his conviction and they threw out the state laws that had banned the burning of the flag. That's judicial restraint. They could have easily, you know, uh, made a different decision and backed up the states and things like that. But they felt like the Constitution says this, this is what we're going to do. And, the, and, and they didn't let their personal beliefs. Rehnquist tended to be conservative, so probably would have been easy for him to say, hey, you know, we're, we're not going to burn the flag. But instead, they overturned those things. All righty. Uh, finally, explain how other branches in the government can limit the Supreme Court's power. Uh, so the College Board gave you five things. Uh, first off, congressional legislation to modify the impact of prior Supreme Court decisions. So Congress does have this power and this ability to legislate around Supreme Court decisions. Uh, going back to Texas versus Johnson, it was unpopular. So the federal government got together, Congress and the president said, let's create a federal law that bans uh, flag burning. So they did. It got overturned as well and declared unconstitutional. But hey, they created that legislation to try and get around that decision. They would have been better off doing the next thing, which is creating a constitutional amendment that said flag burning was illegal. But they didn't do that. They created a law and it was declared unconstitutional. But uh, that's something they can do. If they don't like a decision, they can always legislate around that decision. The amendment thing, uh, that basically bypasses the Supreme Court because once an amendment is made, it becomes a part of the Constitution. It is um, there, and you can't declare a part of the Constitution as unconstitutional. So going through the amendment process probably would have been better for the flag burning thing if they felt that strongly about it. Uh, judicial appointments and confirmations. So the president gets to appoint people to the federal judiciary. That's district courts, um, appellate courts, and the Supreme Court. They have that power. And then the Senate gets to confirm all those things. So they play, they both play a role there in picking the, the judges for these positions. Now, keep this in mind. Uh, once the president makes an appointment, that's it. And once the Senate confirms someone, that's pretty much it. Their hands are tied because those people are there for life on good behavior. Now, Congress can't impeach, and they've done that a couple times, and they've actually kicked judges off the, the bench. But um, they cannot fire them. They cannot lower their salaries. They can't, they can't entice them. Uh, they can't do anything like that, okay? Uh, the president and states evading or ignoring Supreme Court decisions. Remember, the Supreme Court is completely reliant on the president and Congress even to enforce decisions. My favorite example of this is always going to be uh, Jackson, and Chief Justice Marshall, John Marshall from back in the 1800s. Uh, the Cherokee Indians had won a case to be able to stay on their land here in Georgia. And Jackson told John Marshall, hey, you've made your decision. Now you come and enforce it. And he refused to enforce it. Now, the 
the stuff that happened is not my favorite example, but it's just that's a that's my that's a good example of the court making a decision and the president refusing to act on it. And then finally, legislative legislation impacting court jurisdiction. So a couple of things can happen here. First off, uh, Congress can always create new courts. They can get rid of courts. They have that power, that ability. So Georgia has three three federal court district courts. If one of those districts is given a Congress problems because maybe they're from a different ideological perspective than Congress, hey, let's just get rid of that district or let's make Georgia into four districts or whatever they want to do. They can do that. They can also, um, you know, uh, add a court, uh, let's say, Immigration court could be added, uh, maybe down to the southern border to just try and knock out immigration issues as they happen on the border. I don't, I don't know. That's just spitballing right there. But uh, they have that power and that ability. And those are all things that can happen uh, to the courts. All right, guys, that is the courts. Um, as always, make me answer your questions. If you're not sure of something, let me know what I can do to help you, uh, whether it's see me in person or contact me over the Internet. Uh, as always, hope all is well, and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.